Hello, welcome back to the Iron Wolf Kindred podcast. It's uh, going to be a nice, interesting one. We're going into part two um, of my breakdown for Snorri Snarlson's The Prose Edda. I'll uh, pick up where we left off um, with the uh, Burgomir and the appearance of the second race of frost giants. And uh, uh, before we get going, I just wanted to say thank you for coming back. Hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. If you're not already subscribed, please do so. And I uh, hope you enjoy this work that I put together for you guys. So, Burgomir and the appearance of the second race of frost giants. Uh, so on this one it goes, how did they get on together? Who among them was the most powerful? The sons of Bor killed the giant Ymir, answered Hai. When he fell, so much blood gushed from his wounds that with it they drowned all the race of the frost giants, except for one who escaped with his household. The giant, or the giants called out one, Bergomir. He took with his wife, climbed up onto the top of a wooden box, and there they kept themselves safe. From them come the races of the frost giants. And then there's a quote from the Lay of Vathrudnir, the countless winters before the earth was created. Back then, Burgomir was born. That is the first I remember, when the wise giant was placed on the box. So on this, what we have is... The, uh, I guess really the first existence, first world, whatever, um, doesn't really have a name, but it's the place that first formed, um, in the Janunga Gap, which was, you know, the ice and the rime and, um, warmed by the winds of the tempered heat off of Muspel and where all the giants that first came from Ymir and lived among Ymir, Ymir, um, and amongst uh, Bor, Bori, Odin, Ve, and Vili. Um, And then, of course, when the three brothers uh, kill Ymir, um, because he is so great, such a huge giant, you know, so when they kill him and his blood pours out of his body, um, from his from his wounds that it floods the whole world, right? So all of the giants drown except for this one, whose name is Burgomir. Well, him and his wife, and uh, they do this by floating around on a box um, until I guess the water or the 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 world is ordered, and then the blood becomes seas, and the nine realms are established, and they come up on. Jotunheim and that is where they make their home and so that becomes the land of the giants of the frost giants um, because otherwise if it was not for Brogomir all the frost giants would have disappeared that day you know they would have just all been completely wiped out so this is sort of their origin story you know and how they came to be in uh, Jotunheim uh, so they'll go forward we're now in Section 8 is, the world is created from Ymir's body. Um, so here it goes. Gangleri is asking, what did Bor's son do next, if you believe they are gods? And High answers, 
It is no small matter to be told. They took Ymir and they moved him into the middle of Janungagap and made him the world. From his blood they made the sea and the lakes. The earth was fashioned from the flesh and mountain cliffs from the bones. They made stones and gravel from the teeth, the molars, and those bones that were broken. With the blood that gushed freely from the wounds, they made the sea. And by fashioning that sea around, they belted and fastened the earth. Most men would think it impossible to cross over this water. Um, it goes on, but I'm just going to break down some of what we just had here. Um, so we have the blood they made into the sea and lakes, um, which was stated before. And then here we have it states, it's the blood that gushed freely from the wounds um, that the uh, three sons inflicted on him. Uh, that sea was fashioned around and it belted and fastened the earth. And I always try to pay attention to these things when they use words like earth and Midgard. Because some people say it's interchangeable, but then at the same time, there's, in certain contexts, in certain stories, it almost seems as if Midgard is the realm, Earth is actually a place within that realm. So they're, they're actually separate, they're not the same. But then there are some places where Earth is referred to as Midgard or Mannheim. Um, but then also Midgard the realm is also referred this way. So it's really confusing because it seems to be that it was interchangeable, but I do think that breaking it down and studying it a little more in depth that it's, it's, a, it's easy to come to the understanding that Earth is actually a place within Midgard. So, uh, and that they are not one in the same place, even though they are described with place name, you know, Mannheim, Midgard, etc., interchangeably, but they are in fact two separate places. Um, so, you know, we go into detail about the mountains being his bones, um, sea being his flesh, and uh, then we go forward. Uh, they also took his skull and from it made the sky. They raised it over the earth and under each of the four corners, they placed a dwarf. These are called east, west, north, and south. Uh, which are actually pronounced uh, Eastre, Vestre, Norstre, and Soothstre. Uh, then they took the embers and sparks shooting out from Muspelheim and flying randomly. These they placed in the middle of the Janung, or Janung sky, both above and below, to light up heaven and earth. So I, th I think it's interesting detail here where we have the skull of Ymir being placed over earth, but then a there's this other above area, you know, which is called the Janung sky. 
and this is actually where the stars are placed, where the sparks from Muspel are placed. Um, so, you know, very interesting detail, and, you know, especially when you go and look in, uh, you know, look at what we've discovered with science, with our atmosphere being a very thick and heavy, uh, um, thing which is difficult to pass through. And so that could be that. Could be. Um, then we have uh, they fixed places for all these burning elements. Some were placed up in the heavens, where as for others which had moved about under the heavens, they found places and established their courses. So we have the ones that are stationary, and we have the ones that move about. And so when you do look in the sky, there are stars that are always there. And then there are, of course, we have planets, and there are some stars that do, in fact, move where their locations are just because of where we are in the universe. Um, so I think that it's cool that that's actually a distinction, like, hey, there are these ones that actually are moving around, and then there are ones that are stationary. Um, we know that everything is in constant motion, but then at the same time, everything does have its set place, right? So the sun is in the Milky Way, but it's also in the part of the Milky Way that it was... 250,000 years ago, because that's actually how long I think it takes to make a full circle around the galaxy. So we are literally in the same place that we were 250,000 years ago. Um, so there's a fixed, you know, a fixedness to it. A state, like we're stationary. Our star is stationary. Um, but our Earth moves around the star. So, to somebody else, our Earth would look like a, one of these moving stars. And our Sun would look like one of the stationary ones. And so, likewise, that is how we and also our ancestors look up into the sky. We see ones that move and ones that don't move. So, we go forward. It is said in the old sources that from then on, times of day were differentiated and courses of years were set. So, sun did not know where she had her home, moon did not know what strength he had, the stars did not know where their places were. Now, so like this detail, because of course we know at this point, uh, you know, night and day, sun and moon, uh, you know, Mani, uh, were not there yet. And then, so they're still ordering things, but they're placing things into order. Um, at this time. Uh, so here we go, moving into the next area. It's, this was before the Earth was created. So, before Earth, before man. I hear of great happenings. It was wondrous work and skillfully done, but how was the Earth set in order? So now we're going to get specific about Earth. Here it goes. It is circular around the edge and surrounding it lies or in surrounding it lies the deep sea 
On these ocean coasts, the sons of Bor gave land to the clans of the giants to live on. So this is um, around the edge of Midgard is Utgard. Um, and so this is where giants live. Um, and then you have the sea, and then we have um, the middle part of this whole thing. And then that's where the barrier of eyelashes is made. And then within that is earth as well. Specific earth. Um, but further inland they built a fortress wall. So here we go. Further inland they built a fortress wall around the world to protect against the hostility of the giants. As material for the wall, they used the eyelashes of the giant Ymir and called this stronghold Midgard, or Middle Earth. They took his brain, threw it up into the air, and from it they made the clouds, as it is said here. Oh, I guess, uh, I don't know if you can hear this in the recording, but we have thunder outside, so Thor has come to uh, let us know he's near. Um, yeah. Then we go into, men are created and Asgard is built. The All-Father sees everything. This is section 9. Gangleri is asking again, or stating again. It seems to me that they accomplished great things when the earth and the sky were made. The sun, the moon, set in their places, and the day divided. But the people who inhabited the world, where did they come from? So now we're getting into this. And high answers. The sons of Bor were once walking along the seashore and found two trees. They lifted the logs and from them created people. The first sun gave them breath and life the second intelligence and movement, the third form, speech, hearing, and sight. They, bore sons, gave them clothing and names. The name was called, or the man was called Ash, and the woman Embla. From them came mankind, and they were given a home behind Midgard's wall. I said, next they made a stronghold for themselves in the middle of the world. It was called Asgard. We call it Troy. So again, like I said, when I first started doing this, there's manipulations in the stories that have been added in that clearly were not part of it. Um, here they're basically saying that on the earth, on Midgard, Asgard was built. And it's not actually like above us in the heavens, but then we'll have contradictions to this in sections ahead um, where you know as we know Asgard is referred to as one of the high worlds the one of the heavens and um, yeah but here they're trying to call it Troy uh, there the gods live together with their kinsmen um, one place there is called Klask, uh, Lidskalf which watchtower when Odin sat in its high seat, he could see through all worlds and into all men's doings. Um, moreover, he understood everything he saw. His wife, Frigg, Forgin's daughter, 
from this family uh, come the Aesir. They lived in Old Asgard. I guess that's a distinction as Old Asgard or New Asgard, I don't know. Maybe that's referring to the first world, I don't know. Each member of this family is divine. All Father, he is the father of all the gods and men and of everything that he has accomplished by his power. Earth was his daughter and his wife. So, yeah, we got that going on. With her, he had his first son, Asathor of the Aesir. So, as I understand it, Earth is, or Earthus is uh, a Jotun, I think, or a Vanir. Um, I'll have to check on the Poetic Edda, because I think it actually specifically says what she's from. Um, you know, as far as, because here it says that it's Odin's daughter and his wife. So, who's the mother? It's not, I don't think it's actually stated in the uh, prose edda, but, um, you know, when I go into the poetic edda in the future, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that and try and lock that in, because I don't actually remember at this time. Um, so their son was Thor. He has strength and might, and because of this, he defeats all living creatures. So we have the features of Thor. Um, a giant called Norfi, or Narfi, lived in giant land. Oh, sorry. This is section 10. Night and day. Uh, so Norfi in giant land, he had a daughter named Night, who was black and swarthy like her kinsmen. She was married first to the men called Nagalfari. Their son was named Od, which means wealth. Next, she was married to Anar. This, their daughter was named Earth. Uh, finally, she married Deling from the family of the gods. Their son was named Day. So we have the birth of uh, Earth, Night, and Day. Uh, this is... I've read this a long time ago. It's interesting going back through it, but... And taking you all along with me, but uh, yeah, so we have night and uh, yeah, I'm trying to piece my mind through this. So if uh, their daughter was named Earth, so if night she married Anor, maybe Anor is another name for. Uh, Odin. I'll have to check into that. And then their daughter was named Earth. So that way the previous section on you know, the Allfather actually makes some sense. I'll have to look into that. Uh, finally she married Deling from the family of the gods. Their son Day was as bright and beautiful as his father's people. So again we're referring to the uh, Aesir that they're bright and beautiful people. Um... 
Here we have amongst these giants that they are black and swarthy, so we have physical distinctions here. Um, and he gave them two horses and two chariots and placed them in the sky to ride around the earth. Night rides first. Uh, the horse is called Rimfaxi, or Frostmane, and every morning the foam from this horse's bite sprinkles the earth. Day's horse is called Skinfaxi, or Shining Mane. Its mane lights up all the sky. So that's how we have night and day. Then we go into sun and moon. How does he steer the course of the sun and the moon? High answers. There was a man named Mundilfari who had two children. They were so fair and beautiful that he called them, called the one moon and the other a daughter. He called sun. So let's also stop at the section real quick and just go into the sun and the moon already existed and they already were being directed across the sky. It seems by who it's never stated, you know, who the original charioteers were who moved them across the sky, who the immediate, who the original, you know, caretakers for them were. But we do know that because Mundilfari named his children after the sun and the moon, and the gods saw this and were kind of pissed off by this, regarded as being cocky, arrogant, you know, too much. So they took his kids and put them up there to actually be the caretakers of the sun and the moon. You know, so it's like, oh, you named them the sun and the moon? Well, here, we're going to go take them and we're going to make them the sun and the moon. Um, and that's pretty much what this story is. So he, uh, his daughter was called Sun. Um, the gods were um, angered by this arrogance. They took the brother and sister, placed them up in the heavens. They made Sun drive the horse the horses that drew the chariot of the sun um, and which was created from burning embers flying from Muspelheim so here we have the creation of the sun was made from again more burning embers from Muspel um, the horses are called Arvac and Elsvin In order to cool them, the gods place two bellows under their shoulders. According to some lore, the bellows are called Isarn Kol. Mani guides the path of the moon, controls its waxing and waning. He took from the earth two children named Bill and uh, Huki. Hukai, I think. Um, I thought it was an interesting that they went into the detail to actually say, oh yeah, they're actually able to be up there um, and riding in this chariot with the sun behind them, a literal ball of fucking flames and fire. Um, but they can do it. They're, it's cool. They're going to survive. They're humans, but they can do it because we gave them bellows to keep them cool. So it's all right. Don't worry about them. They're fine. Just a kind of interesting detail I thought was in there. Um... So, of course, now, we, now we're on to Mani, the moon. So at some point, Mani took two children from the earth. Their names were Bill and uh, Hajuki. Um, and it goes... 
Vidfin was the name of their father. These children follow Mani, as can be seen from the Earth. So if you ever look at the moon, um, you do see these two stars that are always like really close to the moon. They're just they're always there, um, and that's what this story is about. It's like, hey, those two stars that are always right with the moon. Who are they? And that's what this is. That's who they are. Um, then I'm going to go into section 12, which is called The Wolves. Probably going to finish out with this one. Um, this one is, the sun moves quickly and it is almost as though she fears something. She cannot go faster on her journey even if she were afraid of her own death. And High answers. It is not surprising that she moves with such speed. The one chasing her comes close, and there is no escape from her except to run. Uh, who is chasing her? High answers. There are two wolves, and the one who is chasing her is called Skull. He frightens her, and he eventually will catch her. The other is called Hati. Rodvetnesen. He runs in front of her, trying to catch the moon. And this... And this will happen. Um, so, you know, we have the two wolves in the night sky, the darkness that is in front of and behind the day that surrounds the moon. Both are chasing, and both will eventually be caught. Of what family are the wolves? And here we go into fine detail. This is an ogress lives in the east of Midgard in the forest called Jarnvi, uh, which means Ironwood. The troll woman who are or the troll women who are called the Jarnvidjar, the Ironwood dwellers, live in that forest. The old ogress bore many giant sons, all in the likeness of wolves, and it is from her that these wolves come. It is said that the most powerful of this kin will be the one called Managorm, or Moondog. He will gorge himself with the life of all who die. He and he will swallow the moon, spattering blood throughout the sky and all the heavens. Because of this, the sun will lose its brightness, while the winds will turn violent, roaring in from all directions. So here we're obviously talking about Ragnarok. Um, and the giantess, in case you don't know, is the giantess named Anger Boda, who Loki encounters in his travels around the Nine Realms after the great war between the Aesir and the Vanir. Uh, and he ends up, you know, they become lovers. And he lays with her, and she gives birth to the serpent Jormungandr, to the wolf Fenris, and to the um, goddess of the dead, Hel. Uh, and those are the three children she has with Loki. Um, but she is also the mother of the wolves that chase the sun and the moon. Um, there's, I believe, also the wolf that howls at the gates of hell. Um, is also one of hers. There are also other wolves that are mentioned. Like the wolves of the Yarnveder. They're all supposed to be her children um, and then we have Managorm or Moondog 
Um, but some of the things he's described as doing, you know, we know those to be the deeds of Fenrir once he breaks free from his bindings. So I'll have to look into this a little more myself, but I do think that this reference of Managorm is actually a reference to Fenrir. But uh, I will look into that and I will put that in the next episode as to what I did actually figure out. So, and then here we have the Prophecy of Sybil. In the east, the old one lives in iron wood, and there she bears Fenrir's brood, the wolves. From all of them come one in particular, the ruin of the moon in the shape of a troll. He gorges himself on the life of doomed men, reddens the gods, dwelling with crimson gore. Dark goes the sunshine for summers after, the weather all vicious. So... Yeah, I'm a pretty, pretty frightening shit here. Um, he gorges himself on the life of Doom's men. I think that reads a little differently than what we get here, where it's uh, he will gorge himself with the life of all who die. Um, that comes off a little different. It's a little confusing. Kind of makes you wonder. Like when you, when I think of that, I think, what does he go down to hell and into Van? Van, or Vanaheim and Asaheim and all that and finds all the Einherjar and whatnot and devours them I mean but then when you read this you know uh, he gorges himself on the life of doomed men well obviously any man who meets this wolf is a doomed man so uh, this what this tells me is that um, prior to Ragnarok um or in the lead up to Ragnarok, uh, part of his deeds is that he will, you know, come and be the reckoning of men. That while men are still alive on the earth, he's going to be devouring them. He's going to be ruining them. He's going to be the death of them. Um, he reddens the gods dwelling with crimson gore, so the sky will turn red, probably even if it's day or night. It says, dark goes the sunshine for summers after. So we have several years passing. Uh, the weather, all vicious. So, um, and we know also that before Ragnarok, we have the uh, Fimble Winter, or Fimble Winter, which is the great winter that comes. And it's supposed to be three winters long and causes the reckoning of the world, and famine, and disease, and everybody dies. So, but it could be the coming of this wolf, um, and these things happening, that actually brings about this vicious weather that, you know, is the precursor to Ragnarok. Um, or at least that's what I get out of it, and that's what I got out of it when I read this book first. I. I want to say last time was at least two years ago, um, but the first time I read it, I was about 15, so, oh, geez, and that was about 15 years ago. <laughs> I've been at this for a while, folks. Um, anyways, I hope you enjoyed this reading um, and uh, found it very informative, and I hope that you took my advice in the last one and maybe went out and got yourself a Prosetta, um, a copy of it. 
whether it was from the library or bought at the bookstore, but I really think that it's something that needs to be uh, in every every heathen pagan's um, library collection or whatever, you know. It's, it's a good read. It's a recommendation. Most people get the poetic edda. It's easier to read, and in particular, nowadays we have like the Jackson Crossford edition, which is really good. A lot better, a lot easier to read than like the ones I first got my hands on when I was getting into this. Um, I had I had English translations of the prose edda and the poetic edda that were like from the 1800s and like the 1920s, and uh, it was definitely interesting to read it. So. Um, and of course they were organized differently so back then authors like the books that ended up in the Poetic Edda under Jackson Crawford and then even this version of the Prose Edda done by uh, Penguin Classics uh, there were sections that are in these books that weren't in those ones and there were sections in those books that weren't in that aren't in these ones um, because they come from um, various other small smaller stories i mean like we go through the prosetta and we have you know sybil's prophecy and stuff like that listed in here and then you go into the poetic edda which i conveniently have right here um and we have the gilfigan and we have uh grimismal and we have hem hemskavitha however the hell you pronounce that, and, you know, and they really just picked the ones that were most relative to what they thought you needed to, to know in order to grasp Norse paganism. So, thank you for listening. As always, hail the gods, hail the ancestors, and hail the Iron Wolf Kindred.